Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. This time, the tax status of Akshata Murthy, wife of the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who enjoys non-domicile tax status, which means she doesn't pay the same taxes as the rest of us. Being a non-dom means Akshata Murthy only pays tax on what she earns in the UK on the basis that this isn't her permanent home, even though she is resident at number 11 Downing Street. Is that illegal? No. Is it immoral or unethical? Well, you can make up your own minds. Already I can hear some people saying, isn't this a bit Victorian or at least a bit 1980s to be asking questions about a politician's wife who, after all, hasn't put herself up for election or demanded the glare of publicity. That's certainly a line that's been trotted out by Conservative MPs, essentially saying there's nothing to see here. Now, normally, we at Byline Times would agree, except that, according to the Ministerial Code, ministers must provide a full list in writing of all financial interests, including those of their spouse or partner, that might be thought to give rise to a conflict of interest. Now, if the man who sets tax policy for the country, having a missus who legally avoids paying tax because of rules he's responsible for, isn't a potential conflict of interest, it's hard to know what is. We'll hear shortly from Sam Bright, the investigations editor for Byline Times. But I'd love to hear from you too as well, if you're listening live on Byline Radio. If you want to do that, you do have to be listening on your phone. This doesn't work on iPad or laptop or PC or whatever. You have to be listening on your phone. And in the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see a microphone icon. Tap that. That requests access, and uh, as long as I haven't previously barred you for saying something daft or rude, uh, then we'll let you on. So I'd like to get as many voices as we possibly can on this. And just a reminder as well, before we get cracking, that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast come from the Byline Times, and we're not answerable to any proprietor, to any corporate interest, to any oligarch. There is nobody pulling our strings because we are funded by ordinary people like you. So please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu, but you don't only get your Byline Times newspaper if you take out a subscription. You're also helping to fund Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV, and our wonderful news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome Sam Bright to the conversation now, Sam. And Sam, there are a few layers to this story. I've tried to explain as best I can what a non-dom is. It doesn't mean that you avoid paying tax altogether, but because this is not regarded as your primary home, it does mean that you only pay tax on what you earn in the UK and overseas earnings are paid in tax overseas. That can have significant tax advantages for somebody like Akshata Murthy. Yeah, exactly. And we know the fact that... Um her father is a, an Indian a billionaire businessman and um, Miss Murthy, uh, she, you know, owns considerable shares in companies based in, um, in India. And so um, she will derive a lot of her income from those shares, which means that they won't be 
they won't be domestically taxed, they won't be taxed in the UK using UK um, income tax laws or dividends, however she may be, however she may be paid. So we do know that she derives considerable financial benefit from this. And in turn, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak does, um, does as well. Um, there's obviously been scandal recently um, about her shareholding in this firm called Infosys, uh, which is a technology firm based in India, uh, which until last week maintained an office in Moscow. So she'd been criticised for the fact that this company was continuing to essentially uh, tacitly endorse Putin's regime by by not removing its business from the country, or at least not not be seen to to oppose it in any meaningful way. Um, and Rishi Sunak compared his predicament, uh, their predicament, to um, the Will Smith incident at the Oscars, where Will Smith decided to slap Kevin Hart for criticising his wife. Um, and he's, he's, you know, people have tried to use that argument again. You, you referenced Adrian that. Boris Johnson said this, James cleverly said this, that it's, that it's allegedly Victorian to be talking about someone's wife. But we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds in shareholding that's that's been taxed differently to how we would be taxed. And as you say, the Chancellor's the one setting the rules. Uh, and thirdly, the most crucial thing, which you, you led the show on, the ministerial code, which requires government ministers to declare the... Uh, financial interests of their of their spouse or their partner, and um, to avoid exactly this sort of thing, where the, there is a potential um, conflict of interest between the minister's government role and the financial interests of them or their close family members. I've been looking at the ministerial code today, and I've also been looking at the register of MPs' interests. And although Rishi Sunak is responsible for setting tax policy in this country and his wife benefits from non-domicile tax status, as far as I can see, there is no reference to his wife's position there. No, exactly, there isn't. And Sunak um, controversially uses um, a mechanism that uh, is called a blind trust arrangement, whereby he doesn't have to declare his own personal financial interests. Um, so he's, he's very reticent about um, any sort of commercial declaration that might, that might cause him um, some problems in the newspaper. Um, the only, I think the, I think I'm right in saying the only uh, interest that he declares from his wife is in Catamaran Ventures, which is a, which is a venture capital firm, which uh, we we revealed a couple of weeks ago, um, had ties to uh, a Russian billionaire um, whose fortune had been assisted by um, a now sanctioned Russian oligarch um, who. Um, had close connections to the Kremlin in the past. Um, so even on that front, even on the one small thing that Rishi Sunak has declared on his on his uh, register of interests, even that gives cause for concern. And I think if he declared the full remit of what he and his wife are up to financially, I'm sure there'll be plenty more stories um, in, in the press, to be honest. Yeah, and... Part of Akshata Murthy's defence is that she has no choice but to be non-domiciled. That specifically is not true, is it? 
No, well, lots of lots of people listening to this will have seen the tweet from uh, Richard. Well, the tweet, tweet thread, I should say, from uh, Richard Murphy, who's a tax expert, um, this morning, um, which basically uh, sets out why um, Ash Gatter Murphy's um, denial is is wrong, is erroneous, um, and that's primarily because you have to request non-DOM status. You don't automatically receive non-DOM status if you're a citizen of another country or if you have dual citizenship, um, which is what um, which is what the government's trying to imply. It's trying to imply the fact that um, that she that she uh, is a non-DOM because she is a citizen of India and therefore all citizens of India are non-DOMs. That is not the case. You have to request it. Um, but the thing is, you also have to prove the fact that you are domiciled in a foreign country, that that is your primary home or that you intend to return there. And people have been asking, considering the fact that, you know, Sunak and his wife live uh, in London, you know, in 11 Downing Street, their children attend schools in this country, they have business interests here. Infamously, in the past couple of days, it's been revealed that they donated a sizable sum to Sunak's former school, um, people have been suggesting that an inquiry should be opened up into whether uh, his wife is still a non-dom. Um, so this story may have legs yet. Again, I mean, the, the key point out of this is that whether or not she's an Indian citizen, that in itself does not grant you non-domicile status in tax law. So you could be a citizen of another country, but still live and work in the UK and pay all of your tax on your earned income in the UK. It, it, it does. It, you know, there's no automatic link between an Indian being an Indian citizen and having non-domiciled status. Uh, Richard Murphy makes the point that being a, an Indian citizen might be part of your argument to HMRC, to Revenue and Customs, that you should be treated as non-domiciled. But in a sense, you have to make your case. So saying, yes, I'm an Indian citizen in itself wouldn't clinch it, but it may be part of it. Another part of it might be to say that you have a permanent home in another country. So in her case, people might think, well, reasonably enough, then she has a permanent home perhaps in India. But as far as we can tell, she has three homes in the United Kingdom, uh, one home in the United States, which has been described as a holiday home. So uh, again, there's something there that is at least questionable and that Richard Murphy believes would justify deeper investigation by HMRC. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, this, uh, again, this this really shows where the conflict of interest arises because, you know, who <laughs> who's in charge? Who's in charge of the nation's economy in this whole process? And that's Rishi Sunak. You know, this, you know, he's, he's, he's the boss of the British economy, and yet um, his family members are, are seemingly benefiting from a process, or at least not being investigated um, from a tax, uh, you know, from a tax benefit point of view. Um, and so, I, I mean, politically, it's interesting how he's going to manage to get himself out of this hole. Does he? Does he preempt further scrutiny and say? Yes, I'm going to open an investigation into my own wife. I mean, that seems highly implausible that he would do that. 
Um, is he going to say, well, I'm going to declare more interests on the reg- on the MPs, the Ministerial Register of Interests again? I don't. See, I think that would, as I said, that I think that would fuel the story rather than uh, rather than quash it. And so I think he's driven into a position where he has to double down and he has to um, try and distract uh, in any way possible from from this story, um, whilst potentially being hammered by opposition parties for um, potentially financially benefiting both he and his wife from a situation that he's in charge of, essentially. Yeah. Let's just explore a little bit more. I know you've written about this as well, Sam, for Byline Times. People go and check out your article at bylinetimes.com about the relationship between a company in which he was heavily invested called Infosys and Putin's Russia. Yes. So, uh, as I said previously, Infosys um, is a is an IT firm that um, that operates primarily in India. It was it was uh, founded by um, Rishi Sunak's uh, father in law. Um, Rishi Sunak's wife holds shares worth um, it's believed some seven hundred million pounds in this company, um, and it's retained its presence in Moscow. Um, even during the Ukraine crisis um, and under the PR pressure of, of these stories, only last week announced that it was, it was withdrawing from, from Russia. Uh, and lots of people have criticised India's relationship with, with Putin and the fact that they haven't followed through on the sanctions that have been, that have been imposed by the, the wider West. Um, and this potentially fits into that, into that general pattern. There's also another firm, another Indian firm, um, which um, Sunak's wife is invested in, called Udan, um, which is a which is a another technology company, and that has received considerable investment from a man called Yuri Milner, who is a Russian billionaire. He's big on the Silicon Valley tech scene, as we know, as you just mentioned, Adrian. Um, Sunak and his wife own a property in California. And now Yuri Milner gained much of his wealth um, thanks to um, the oligarch by the name of Alishar uh, Uzmanov, who's an Uzbekistan-born metals magnate. Um, Now, Uzmanov, who's now been sanctioned by much of the West, he's got a close relationship with Vladimir Putin. So Milner, who's invested in the company that Sunak's wife has also invested in, essentially gained his fortune uh, thanks to someone who had close ties to the Kremlin, which again raises certain, perhaps not conflict of interest concerns because Usmanov has little to do with um, Milner and Udan, um, the company in question now. But more in terms of the awkwardness of the perception of all this, and exactly how um, Rishi Sunak is declaring his conflicts of interest, um, because these sort of connections are not stipulated at all um, by the Chancellor in the Ministerial Register, Register of Interests. And it's up to journalists like you and I to um, go and search them out when, as you said, he is, he is explicitly required to declare things um, that may give rise to conflicts of interest between his government activities and um, the commercial interests of his of himself and his family members. Yeah, a Charter Murty's spokeswoman has said 
that she pays all the tax that she is legally required to in Britain. And we should make it clear, there is no question about that. That is not the debate. It's whether she is entitled to non-domiciled status and whether that is appropriate for the wife of a Chancellor of the Exchequer and whether the Chancellor of the Exchequer ought to be declaring that in a much more transparent way than is the case in this instance. That's really where the debate lies. And I suppose there's a bigger question here, Sam, and you've touched on it there with the the talk of these companies operating in Russia, even at a time of international sanctions and only disengaging when the fierce glare of publicity is upon them. And it's this sense of this tiny elite of super rich people surfing global economies, Mm. making money wherever in the world that they can, moving money around entirely legally from one domain to another and avoiding the harshest tax regimes. There is something that will grate, I think, with many ordinary listeners who are facing, as we are here in the UK, national insurance rises, cost of living increases at the moment, at the idea that there is this tiny, tiny group of very wealthy and very powerful people who aren't or who aren't being seen to pay the same dues as the rest of us. Yeah, and combined with that, the fact that they're in charge of the country, (laughs) Um, you know, they're supposed to be the people's representatives, and like you say, who, who do they actually represent? They represent the oligarchy, um, supposedly the sort of people who we're now supposed to be punishing. I mean, there are, there are a lot of parallels um, with the people who've bought up property in London for the past couple of decades, who've invested heavily in the city of London. Of course, Parliament's Intelligence and Security Commission uh, sorry, uh, Intelligence and Security Committee called it London Grad um, because of the influence of Russian oligarchs um, in the capital in recent years. Um, they've managed to launder their reputations, and they've, like you say, they've managed to um, they've managed to um, ensure that they retain uh, as much of their money as possible. Much of which has been um, gained at the behest of Vladimir Putin and his regime. Um, and you see these sort of people, or at least this sort of mentality, now at the top of the Conservative Party and at the heart of our government, you know, people who have extraordinary amounts of wealth. I mean, Rishi Sunak is estimated to be worth hundreds of millions of pounds, and his wife um, potentially richer than the Queen. You know, these are people who represent the 0.001%, not even the 1%, not the 10%, not the 50%, you know, not the 40% who, who voted for them, but, you know, a slither of the population. And essentially, you know, these are, these are people as well who've put in place fundraising mechanisms so that their political influence and the success and fortune, uh, both political and financial, of the Conservative Party is ensured, you know, for, for years. So, you know, the Conservative Party, as we know, is accepting millions from... Russian millionaires uh, since Boris Johnson took over as prime minister. It is it is a party that functions on donations from millionaires and billionaires and those who own corporate entities that do traverse the world and you know do take advantage of 
of loopholes where they exist. And there just seems to be a fundamental question there as to whether, I mean, it's a matter for the British population and the British population have voted for the Conservative Party. But there is a fundamental political question here as to whether the Conservative Party can claim to represent the interests of the entire British population when um, it is funded by such a narrow elite um, and its and its politicians are very much embedded within that. I'm Adrian Goldberg. He is Sam Bright. You are listening to Byline Radio, if you're listening live, or you might be listening to the catch-up on the Byline Times podcast. Just a reminder that our work on the radio and on the podcast is supported by subscriptions to the Byline Times funded by ordinary people like you. So if you do take out a subscription, which we'd heartily recommend, you can read plenty more by Sam and loads of other great writers. You get a brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, but you also help support our work on Byline Radio and The Byline Times podcast. And you'll get details on how to subscribe at our website, bylinetimes.com, which has loads of new stories every day as well. Probing, investigative, asking questions of power, doing the proper job of journalists and answerable to no one. As I say, you can find out more, take out a subscription at bylinetimes.com. There's a bit of a historical resonance to this, Sam. People may remember the comedian Jimmy Carr, and there was a bit of a scandal, wasn't there, about his tax affairs and entirely legal tax avoidance. Previous Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron said Jimmy Carr's actions were morally wrong. And as I said, right at the start, people can make up their own minds as they're listening to this, whether Rishi Sunak's wife is doing anything morally wrong or whether she's entirely entitled to do what she's doing. But I think that's where a lot of the the animus around this story rests. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the real moral hypocrisy of the whole thing. And this this idea as well that it's one rule for us and one rule for for them, which really, I think, stems back to, um, well, not stems back to, but it's been amplified by the Partygate you know, story, the fact that during the pandemic, Boris Johnson and uh, you know, Downing Street advisors parted while the rest of the country locked down. Uh, and in this case, many people will see that um, they have to pay taxes, they work hard and pay their taxes in this country. You know, why are those at the top of the tree um, you know, linked to ministers, you know, in some cases, you know, ex-ministers themselves, current ministers, why are they not paying their fair share? Um, and, then, and then even before that, even even before the Partygate stuff kicked off, you know, you'd got you'd got the scandal just prior to Christmas about um, MP second jobs. You know, we almost forget about that now. The fact that, uh, I mean, this was known for years that MPs took second jobs, but it was blown into the public consciousness um, that MPs were earning uh, ludicrous and still are earning ludicrous amounts of money as part-time consultants um, for for private firms um, operating their own law practices. You know, there's the big scandal for uh, involving former Attorney General Jeffrey Cox, um, who consulted on behalf of a Caribbean island, I forget exactly which, but um, which in itself is a tax haven, um, which again uh, just strikes to the heart of this current issue. Um, the fact that um, politicians are, are really milking um, their position and their status to not serve the interests of 
the people they represent, but to serve their own bank accounts. Um, and people just see that as deplorable, especially in the context of the uh, of the expenses scandal now um, over a decade ago. Um, it just seems to be one sort of kicking the teeth after another uh, for the British public that is told year in, year out, they've got to be thrifty. You know, austerity came, you've got to tighten your belts. You know, we're, we're all in this together, the Conservatives said. And now this year, it's the cost of living crisis, it's the war in Ukraine, we've got to make sacrifices to to tackle Putin's war effort, you know. Um, we'll, we'll all we'll all suffer, but we'll we'll make it out because we're a great nation. And yet again, it's it's only it's only it's only the majority that are suffering, but not the minority at the top. And I think it's really politically dangerous to be honest with you, Adrian, because I think these sort of stories, when they keep coming, when they keep battering people, the relentlessness of the corruption and the scandals. I think it I think it genuinely radicalizes people. I think it makes people think it makes people apathetic, which is dangerous for one, because it lets the abusers uh, back into power again and again. But it also turns them towards more radical ideas and towards, you know, revolutionary concepts, you know, dangerous revolutionary concepts. We may need a revolution, you know, in a positive way to change some of these processes. But, the, you know, there's plenty of revolutions that people believe in that um, may be hugely dangerous to, to this country. And, and that's, that's what, what fundamentally is at stake. Maybe not in the short term, but, you know, in the long term, you sort of, you have that, that growing anger of the population, which is never healthy in a democracy. Yeah, it makes people feel disillusioned, not with just individual politicians, but with the idea of democracy itself, which clears the way for authoritarian rule, doesn't it? But a strong leadership that will clean up all the mess. Often, in fact, always, that proves to be illusory, but it can be attractive to some people at times of crisis. And one of the reasons why Trump was successful in the United States, one of the reasons why somebody like Orban has been successful in obtaining and maintaining power in Hungary, and many people would argue it's also part of the appeal of Boris Johnson and what's intriguing about non-dom as well this this status that you have and again people might say there's that there is a reasonable basis for accepting that some people might be working temporarily in the United Kingdom but whose homes are in another part of the world I think we can all recognize that as a as a real life scenario and who therefore sure for a short period of time may be entitled to earn money in the UK for which they pay tax in the UK but whose other income in other parts of the world should not be taxed in the UK because those people in the long term are not using British services over and above those which they pay for through their existing taxation. But there are people like the former Conservative Deputy Chair Lord Ashcroft, who I think was a long-time resident of Belize. You've got the Daily Mail proprietor Lord Rothermere, and I think that many people would look at this and say, not that we should scrap non-DOM rules, but the rules should only apply to people who really are temporarily involved in the UK and who do not have any significant influence on our public life. If you want that and you want to be seen as one of us, fine. You're welcome from wherever in the world you may be, but 
you have to pay for that. And part of the membership fee, many people would argue, is to pay taxes on everything that you earn and and pay that tax in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's plenty of ways in which the rule should be tightened. I, I think that, you know, the, there's reasonable scepticism as to whether the Conservative Party will ever enact those sorts of changes. Uh, I mean, for one now, because it's sort of a recognition that um, that they were misbehaving Sunak and, he, and his wife, you know, like you say, not unlawfully, but um, potentially, you know, some will say that they've behaved immorally. Um, and if the Conservative Party changed the rules now, they're sort of admitting that mm, perhaps they shouldn't have done that. Um, it's also the case, as I've mentioned, that the Conservative Party is, is funded by people um, who, you know, have a great deal of money and ship that money from one jurisdiction to the next in order to pay as little tax as possible. And so you can imagine if they tightened up the rules on non-DOMs that they'd be getting quite a few phone calls from uh, from donors saying that their, um, their credit card's now being, uh, being revoked. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it is a potential problem for, for the Conservative Party in what they do about this. Um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm listening to you, Sam, though, because, you know, the irony is the amount of money that you need to earn in order to legally avoid paying tax in the UK on this basis is phenomenal. You have to pay to have non-domicile status now. And the fee for enjoying non-domicile status ranges from 30,000 to 60,000 pounds. So Britain does now, it didn't used to, I think this is from 2017, I'll stand to be corrected on that, but you didn't used to have to pay a fee to be regarded as non-domiciled. And obviously politicians recognised that there were people who were abusing the system, people who were taking advantage of it and who were perhaps not contributing as much to the UK exchequer as they should be or as they could be. So they introduced a fee and it depends on how long you're resident in the UK as a, as a non-dom. So your, your fee, I think, is thirty or £60,000 to join that club. How much money <laughs> do you need to earn mm. to make it worthwhile to pay £60,000 in, in, as it were, a voluntary tax? Well, not a voluntary tax, but to pay £60,000 to avoid paying the tax you would otherwise pay mm. if all of your earnings were taxed here in the UK? I didn't earn... £30,000 last year, much less pay a £30,000 membership fee to be non-DOM. Exactly. The return on investment must be must be absolutely wild. And, you know, like you say, this is this is the chance of the exchequer. This is his and his wife's personal financial interests, you know, which potentially, the you know, due to the system that's in place in the UK, they're earning, I mean, safe to assume maybe 10 times that figure is, is a reasonable Return on investment, five times that figure, so £300,000, £600,000. Even that, we're not even reaching into the millions at that stage. Even that's a vast amount of money. You know, more than more than the, the overwhelming majority of people pay in this country. Uh, sorry, earn in this country and, and paying taxes in this country. It's, uh, it is, it, like, these sums, uh, even despite the coronavirus pandemic, when we've been used to be, we've been used to hearing billions and millions banded about even you know even that in on a personal level is a vast amount of amount of, of money for for two people yeah um i'm quoting here from the guardian and they cite a study by the london school of economics and the university of warwick and they found that two-fifths of people who earned 
five million pounds or more in 2018 had claimed non-dom status at some point since 1997. So 40% of people who'd earned five million pounds or more over the previous two decades had at some point claimed non-dom status. And they say it includes famous actors, directors, movie producers, Premier League footballers, 22% of top-earning bankers as well have benefited from the scheme. I think there's a bigger philosophical point here, Sam, that I'm really interested to know if any of our listeners have any thoughts on this. And I've grown up with this, as you have, this notion of mm, there's another penny on the a penny on the income tax and all this, this notion that taxation is bad. Now, of course, you know, none of us likes, at some level, none of us likes paying out any more money than we want to. Mm. But, but, do I resent paying taxes? No, I don't. Do I embrace living in a society in which someone, when they are ill, can go and get treatment at a hospital free of charge? Yes, I do embrace that. Do I want to live in a society where there are trains that run in the evening that might not be particularly full, but which ferry people who maybe are doing low-paid jobs to and from their place of work or places of entertainment? Do I do I want to live in a society where the roads are well-maintained and not full of potholes, as they are currently in Birmingham, <laughs> where I live? And the answer to all these questions is yes. And how do we get these things in society? We get these things through taxation. And we put all of our money into the pot and then we, because we're very privileged to live in some form of functioning democracy, can also get to say who the people who spend that money on our behalf should be. And if we don't like them, we can kick them out. Mm-hmm. That's a huge privilege. And you realise what a privilege it is when you see what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. But there's a whole narrative and it's, I have to say, embraced by most of the mainstream parties in this country, that we want to keep tax down, that tax is a bad thing. Tax is a good thing. It has to be usefully and purposefully spent. But let's say here and now, taxation is a good thing. And many of the things that we value in our society, from education, universal education, free healthcare at the point of use, modes of transport, street lighting, these things come from taxation. And if we didn't have taxation, we would live in a far less habitable country, one that wasn't properly policed, one where fires were not put out when they took hold. Taxation's really good. There, I've said it. <laughs> radical, radical, Adrian. Well, man, we'll be, you know, donning your red beret um, before we know it and leading the revolution. Uh, and for one, I look forward to it. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think, I think there's there's a great problem in this country in that. Um, you sort of have r- rampant capitalism, which adds to the costs of, of people's living expenses, which then makes them really um, nervous about tax increases and probably justifiably. I mean, for example, I unfortunately live in, in London where um, renting a property is prohibitive. Um, so any increases on um, the cost of energy down here um, will push even more people um, into poverty than already are in poverty in London. You know, you know greater percentage than anywhere else in the country um, are in poverty in London, primarily because housing 
is so expensive. You know, wages are higher here in London by by an extraordinary amount versus the rest of the country. But the fact is that housing costs are high to such an extent that it's pushed millions of children and adults, many of whom are in work, the adult size, you know, into poverty. And that's a, that's a ludicrous situation. Um, if we, if and you know, we're seeing this in the energy crisis. We've seen energy firms um, profiting um, to you know to the tune of billions, um, while you know ordinary people are scraping around for for the next meal. And so there's there's something fundamentally wrong there in the way that capitalism is regulated and governed in this country, which therefore, as a result, makes um, higher taxation a lot less palatable to people. I mean, you can imagine a situation in which. National insurance, the national insurance um, contributions went up, um, not at a time when um, there's an energy crisis and perhaps when economic growth was strong. And I'm sure there'd be little objection to that whatsoever. But it's the fact that this comes, um, you know, it compounds everything else that people are suffering um, economically that um, really, I think, pushes people towards a, an economically uh, conservative uh, mindset. Yeah, uh, well, again, I think we've been conditioned, haven't we, to believe that low taxation is a good thing. I mean, this is the narrative of global corporations. But I say to you here and now, Sam, that taxation is the oxygen of the welfare state. Take away taxation, reduce taxation, the welfare safety net on which virtually all of us, I'm excluding that 1% of oligarchs, Virtually all of us rely on some or all of that welfare state safety net at some point in our lives, whether it encompasses the NHS, whether it's about education, whether it's about policing, just the fabric, the glue that holds society together. Anyway, I've ranted enough, Sam, and I've <laughs> taken up enough of your time. It's been really brilliant to speak to you, and I hope for people listening this has been a really good and full introduction i heard on the brilliant normally brilliant radio 4 p.m program evan davis the normally brilliant evan davis asking the question does it matter that the chancellor's wife is a non-dom i hope we've answered that question comprehensively yes i was disappointed to hear that question being asked quite honestly and i think you know there are there are better ways to to frame it and i think we've comprehensively proved that it does matter and that it should be a matter of concern for our political classes one final question sam before i go accepting of course it matters and we've demonstrated why it matters is there also an argument here that there are people on the Tory right, or maybe even on the Tory left, I don't know, but people close to Boris Johnson perhaps, who are out to get Rishi Sunak, people who perhaps see him as a potential rival to Boris Johnson and who have decided by perhaps leaking this information, I don't know what the original source is, but who have decided that he needs to be either brought down or at least taken down a peg or two. Yeah, certainly. I, I think there's a lot of ill feeling towards Sunak within the Conservative Party, you know, among Johnson allies who I think blame the Treasury to some extent for the for the leaks of information around Partygate. And like you say, on the right of the party, those who who uh, are opposed to any new tax increases and particularly the national insurance hike, as the as they call it. Um, so he's got to watch his back, Sunak, politically, for sure. Uh, you know, I'd say that He's left himself wide open to this sort of attack 
by not holding um, his and his family's affairs to the highest possible standards. You know, I just see it as politically baffling why as soon as he took over as chancellor, he didn't get all of this in order and why he wasn't um, really diligent about making sure that no one could accuse him of this sort of thing. Um, and that's that's an act of political stupidity and he's been, he's been punished for it, frankly. So um, he does, politically speaking, he does um, have a, a good degree of cult- culpability himself as well. I don't think this is a story that's going to disappear anytime soon. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's Sam Bright, the investigations editor at Byline Times. You can read some brilliant stuff on this by Sam at our website, bylinetimes.com, and also by our political and Westminster correspondent, Adam Bienkoff, as well, who's written a very piercing article. Uh, about the situation engulfing Rishi Sunak at the moment. What can you do? Well, you can take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Check out our website, bylinetimes.com, and that'll tell you how to take out a subscription and where you can go. It's only 39 quid a year, for God's sake. And you get a brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times, and you're helping to fund Byline Radio and Byline Times podcast, which is where Byline Radio ends up after it has been live. Please spread the word far and wide if you can. We don't have a marketing budget, so anything you can do to let people know that we are here and that we have these kind of in-depth, intelligent debates. I know, rare, isn't it? Uh, Please do uh, spread the word. In the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening. It's been great to have you along with us at Byline Radio. I'm Adrian Goldberg. I'll see you soon.